Hello and welcome to Nightlight. There's a kind of hope and comfort that ironically can come only through a genuine encounter with the reality of death. Folks who have managed to remain ignorant of ultimate issues are becoming increasingly aware that something fundamental has been altered in the fabric of what we used to perceive as our secure, normal existence. It takes more effort to whistle in the dark than it used to. The happy mood of a sunny day in America or Europe has always been shadowed by our mortality, but it was easy to ignore because of an overly secure sense of well-being that our culture provided, but that's, that's disappearing. Now it's beginning to be understood that the false security was nothing more than a thin veneer that covered a volcano of potential destruction of all kinds. And there's this daily growing sense that the danger is imminent, where before it was only easily dismissed as a rumor, a random news event somewhere else. Now it can take many different forms. With the increased awareness of so many dangers, there's a growing anxiety that any minute one or more of these Various dangers can burst into full-blown terror. How is there any potential hope or comfort in that? Well, because a true awareness of the temporariness of all things can be the beginning of humility. And humility is the first necessary step towards repentance and salvation. The current worldwide awareness that things are simply no longer stable and that there is really no human help to be had to bring restoration, in spite of the obvious bad in all of that, there is therefore this one good. For instance, there's a wonderful awareness in wartime of the very real and impending threat of death. C.S. Lewis describes in Screwtape Letters, a conversation between Screwtape and his nephew, Demon Wormwood, about the problem that war and physical danger can cause for the demonic tempters who are seeking to lull people into a passive uh, death without Christ. Wormwood is happy to learn that coming bombing of Britain is uh, an exciting uh, reality that uh, is on its way. He's all excited about the suffering it's going to bring and the tragedy and the human brokenness and death. Screwtape replies, Do you not know that bombs kill people? Or do you not realize that our patient's death at this moment is precisely what we want to avoid? As the full impact of the war draws nearer and his worldly hopes take a proportionately lower place in his own mind, he has been taken out of himself, as the humans say, and is now in daily conscious dependence on the enemy, who of course is God, becoming increasingly concerned with the well-being of his loved ones and his neighbors, a mindset we want to always help him avoid. For Screwtape and all the tempters of hell, this is obviously not a good set of circumstances. Worldly false security and indifference to eternal issues along with a self-centered indifference to the needs of other people, is far more helpful to the cause of hell than is any impending danger. 
Obviously, men and women become aware of the possible loss of life during wartime or in any time where normal securities have been shaken. Death in this context is a potential friend. I've said it now for several years. I've said it over and over till you're probably tired of hearing me say it, that I welcome whatever shaking we may have to endure, though I'm certainly not wanting it uh, for myself or for those I love or for anybody else for that matter. I still welcome whatever shaking may come if it might awaken people from this mindless amusement and the and possibly bring an awakening of conscience with the result that the Holy Spirit might gain the attention of people and lead them to repentance. The worst judgment that could come upon us is that God would allow mindless stupidity to continue to go on and on unimpeded. The terrible troubles that are now multiplying all around, though they are real evils, can become a tool of grace to help people in the long run. As the prophet Hosea says in chapter 2 of verse 15 of of, uh, Hosea, the valley of trouble has become a door of hope. The awakening of the reality of death is the great gift given in times of affluent rebellion. This is one disguised aspect of the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans chapter 2 refers to. Please don't think for one moment that this means God hates joy or material blessings and wants to punish a nation for having a good time. Foolish as that idea is, it's amazing how often uh, people fall for it, especially in religious circles. Not the joy or the material blessing that's the problem. It's the hard focus of idolatrous, arrogant independence from God that's the problem. Jeremiah says in chapter 2, verse 18, We have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot even hold real water, but hold poison. Few of us alive now remember the so-called Roaring Twenties or why that decade was given that title. It was a time at the close of the First World War that brought about huge cultural shifts. Instead of a sober awakening and embracing of things that make for life and godliness, it became just the opposite, a time of decadence and immorality, godlessness and excess, Crooks and murderers became the heroes in the daily newspapers. Government corruption was becoming the norm. It's really not that hard for us to understand this strange dynamic since we have, as a nation, done exactly the same thing after 9-11. Maybe three weeks there was soul-searching and concern over moral, spiritual, and eternal issues, but it was only a matter of weeks before all that gave way to its absolute opposite. And we have decreased in uh, spiritual awareness and increased in immorality and debauchery and government corruption and crime and violence ever since. The decade of the 20s ended in the great economic collapse that brought on the Great Depression, which then paved the way for the rise of Hitler and the terrible harvest of sorrow and death that was the Second World War which was merely a continuation of the first. Now, at the beginning of the war, the United, uh, of uh, the Second World War, the United States on the morning of December 7th, 1941, 
Dr. Peter Marshall was to give the address to the graduating class at Annapolis. Moments before he was to speak, he told his hosting commanding officer that he had suddenly become aware that the message he had planned was not the right one and that he must be free to change it. Well, in a moment, you'll hear that exact message as it was given that morning at Annapolis. And when you hear this recording, which is taken from the movie about Dr. Marshall called A Man Called Peter, Catherine Marshall, Peter's wife and the author of his story, said that the presentation in the film was so exact that it was as if she was hearing her husband speaking it again, just as it was given on that faithful morning of December 7th, 1941. Only an hour before these Navy men would be thrust into the maelstrom of World War II as the news of the bombing of Pearl Harbor crashes in on them minutes behind Dr. Marshall's prophetic sermon. Let's listen. James, 4th chapter, 14th verse. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while, then vanisheth away. What a queer thing for James to say. It's a strange statement to find in the New Testament, is it not? Is he being cynical? Is he joking? Well, hardly. If you look at the context in which this statement appears, you will see that James is speaking to those who make great assumptions as to the future with never a thought of the contingency of life itself. He's addressing himself to those who never think of God and who act and live as though they had a mortgage on time. Those who give no thought to the fact that they may never see tomorrow. Those who act as though they had a long lease on life. As though they had immunity somehow. As though that cold and clammy hand of the dread messenger would never touch their hearts. Yet, death inevitably comes to the king in his palace, the beggar by the roadside, the animal in his hole. But what is death? Is it to be blown out like a candle in the wind? Is it a shivering void in which there is nothing that lives is it a cold space into which we are launched to be evaporated or to disappear? Are we to believe that a half-mad eternal humorist tossed the worlds aloft and left their destiny to chance? That a man's life is the development of a nameless vagrancy? That a hole in the ground six feet deep is his final heritage? There are a thousand insane things easier to believe than these. How can we believe that human personality will not survive when one who went into the grave and beyond came back to say, Whosoever believeth in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. In a home of which I know, a little boy, the only son, was ill of an incurable disease. Month after month, the mother had tenderly read to him, nursed him, and played with him, hoping to keep him from realizing the dreadful finality of the doctor's diagnosis. But as the weeks went by and he grew no better, the little fellow gradually began to understand the meaning of the term death. 
and he too knew that soon he was to die. One day, the mother had been reading to him the stirring tales of King Arthur and his knights of the round table, and of that last glorious battle in which so many fair knights met their death. As she closed the book, the boy lay silent for a moment, then asked the question that had been weighing on his childish heart. Mother, what is it like to die? Mother, does it hurt? Quick tears sprang to her eye and she fled into the kitchen, supposedly to tend to something on the stove. She knew it was a question with deep significance. She knew it must be answered. She leaned for an instant against the kitchen door and breathed a hurried prayer that the Lord would not let her break down in front of the boy, that he would tell her what to say. And the Lord did tell her. Immediately she knew how to explain it to him. Kenneth, she said, as she returned to his room, you remember how, when you were a little boy, you would play so hard all day that when night came, you were too tired even to undress and would tumble into your mother's bed and fall asleep? In the morning, much to your surprise, you would wake up and find yourself in your own room, in your own bed. You were there because someone had loved you and taken care of you. Your daddy had come with big strong arms and carried you to your own room. Kenneth, death is like that. We just wake up one morning to find ourselves in the other room. Our own room where we belong because the Lord Jesus had loved us. The lad's shining, trusting face looking up to hers told her that there would be no more fear, only love and trust in his little heart as he went to meet the Father in heaven. He never questioned again. And several weeks later, he fell asleep just as she had said. That is what death is like. Yet, in the life beyond, the question inevitably comes, with what body do we move? Certainly not with such a body as ours is today. Not with rickets or a club foot. Not with twisted spine or withered arm. Not with calloused hands or wrinkled brow. Not with a heart filled with the broken glass of vanquished dreams. Not with the drunkard's thirst like the fires of hell. Nor the sensualist's lust like gnawing worms. Not with the bitter memories of a son's crime or a daughter's shame. Not with the scar across the throat of the maniac's frenzy made. No! Not with these do we make our entrance upon that larger stage. We rise, not clothed again in dying clay. Not guard once more with the faded garments of mortal flesh. But with the shining mercy of God. If the Bible is true and Christ has not deceived us. There awaits beyond the curtain a life that will never end. A life of beauty and peace and love. A life of reunion with loved ones who, like ourselves, have trusted in the very presence of God. There shall be no more pain, no more sorrow, nor tears, nor parting, nor death anymore. Age shall not weary, nor the years condemn. 
We shall enter into that for which we were created. It shall be the journey's end for the heart and all its hopes. It shall be the end of the rainbow for the child explorers of God. We have his promise for that. Let us pray. Our Father's God, to thee who are the author of our liberty and under whom we have our freedom, we say our prayer. Make us ever mindful that we are the heirs of a great heritage and the trustees of priceless things, lest we forget the price that was paid for them or the cost that may yet have to be met to keep them. Make us strong, O God, in conviction with the insight of our perilous times and in the courage for our testing. Amen. Lord, make us mindful of the courage that had to be expressed and the price that may have to be again paid to keep the treasures entrusted to us. A few minutes later, they find that World War II has reached American shores. Now, on a less dramatic level, what else does the awareness of death do for us in a positive way? I guess it's simply human for us to assume that we are all doing our best. We do, don't we? We couldn't make any progress towards good. Otherwise, we would be too taken up with our perception of our own lack or character flaws. And we probably all know people like that. Maybe we are like that. We, we, we're so taken up with a preoccupation of our own failure, our own weakness, that we never get anything done worth doing. God is not a harsh legalist who is constantly watching to see if we really are giving it our all. He knows our frame and remembers that we are in process. He who has begun a good work in us is finishing it. But since we are in process, he also knows that he must sovereignly oversee that process and move circumstances into place that will arouse us step by step to a greater awareness of where our true treasures are. Paul describes this process in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, when he says, For all of creation was made subject to futility and frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of him who frustrated it in hope. What does that mean? It means that God purposefully subjected this current world system because of the fall of man and because of the intrusion of sin, he set into the very fiber of this present uh, creation, this present material world, the second law of therm thermodynamics. Things break. Things don't work right. Conflicts arise. Various disintegrations take place. Why did God do that? The devil didn't do it. God did it. He did it in hope. 
In hope, the biblical meaning of hope is not a I hope so, it's a guaranteed future. There's a guarantee, Romans 8, 18 previously says, the, the verse that precedes this, uh, Paul says, for I have calculated, he, he uses, uh, the word is logizomai in Greek, he, he says, I have logically come to this conclusion that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be, to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to and in us. There is a direct relationship between the frustration and disintegration and the glory that is coming. And an incremental progress from worldly-minded self-satisfaction, which is really a futile pursuit, to a longing for heaven and for ultimate reality only comes to us through the disguise of disappointments, struggles, failures, betrayals, and all the battles lost and in what may at times feel like the ultimate death of things we once held dear. In the face of these momentary losses, we cannot see or feel that the rubble of our crumbled castles is the material out of which our future glory is being formed. That's where we must consider whether we truly believe the gospel or just tip our hats to it. For this present suffering is but for a moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Our light affliction, which is only for a moment, is working for us a far greater weight of glory. Several years ago, a young pastor and student of mine called me in the middle of the day. He said, I've been trying to get mom and dad on the phone, and it's just not like them not to answer. I'm, I'm sure they're fine, but I just wanted to ask you to pray with me for them. I'm a bit uneasy. I heard myself say to him words that I don't think came from me. They only came through me because I was as shaken by the demand of those words as he was. I said to him in as stable a voice as I could muster, what do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Be sure you examine your heart and know that you believe that our Lord Jesus rose bodily from the grave and is alive forever and that he is the author of eternal life for all those who call upon him. He soberly answered, I believe. The next call I got was of the news that his parents were on their way to a pastoral hospital visit, for his dad was a pastor also, when they were hit head-on by an elderly man who was driving 70 miles an hour in the wrong lane. He was a man uh, who was not supposed to have been behind the steering wheel. He had slipped out and stolen the car keys and not obviously in his right mind had driven off. Well, this young man's mother died before reaching the hospital and his dad, his dad uh, passed away several days behind his wife. Their son was plunged into the battle of his life as he wrestled with every doubt, fear, rage, question, and sorrow that was brought on by such a seemingly futile loss. 
Why was the old man driving? Why were my parents his victims? Why did God allow this? Who am I now? Who is God to me? Death is so cruel. Cruel because it is so meaningless. Futile. There has got to be a reason, we say. And on some level, sometimes there may be a reason. But we must calculate. Remember the word logizomai, it's reasoning. We calculate along with Paul. We come to the calculation that there is no reason for death. Death is unreasonable. Death is futility. It has no reason in it. It is the collapse of reason, the loss of meaning, the bankruptcy of life. And all of creation was purposefully placed in subjection under this futility of death, this this force of meaninglessness for a meaningful purpose. And the meaningful purpose of meaningless, futile death is, Paul says, one of hope. This death finally being destroyed by life. When Jesus finally came to the tomb of his close friend Lazarus, the text is John chapter 11, if you want to read it. There's two things in particular that Jesus shows in response to Lazarus's death. First, he wept, which shows the human empathy of the pain of this terrible event. But then it says he groaned in his spirit. And the word for groan here is a word in Greek that involves anger. Anger at something that should not be. He came and destroyed death and is working to use the futility of this present futile frustrating system in order to forge a body of people who in faith trust him to turn futility into purpose and raise life out of death. So that's why Paul goes on to say that the entire creation is groaning in Romans chapter 8. Paul says he groans, the earth groans, creation groans in travail, waiting and longing for the coming liberation from this futility when the manifestation of the glorious liberty of the sons of God brings that futility finally to an end and births the new creation in its fullness. But while we're in that process, creation groans, we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. And how do we groan? The same way the Lord Jesus groaned at the face of Lazarus' death. Till then, from the moment of our faith in that reality, we are challenged all the way through to the moment of its satisfaction when we pass through our own death process in which we are transformed from glory to glory into men and women who have conquered death both within and eventually without This young pastor whose parents were ripped from him in such a seemingly meaningless manner is now a masterfully wise and compassionate shepherd, teacher, and healer of souls. He's old for his age because he has had to pass through a lifetime of battle in a short span of time. God is making him into a powerful witness of what it really means 
to not just live in lip service to the resurrection as mere doctrine, but as life from the dead in the here and now. I've lived long enough now and lost enough of this world's promised glory to begin to grasp a little bit of the truth of these words. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but his word is forever. Scripture tells us that all things are for our sakes. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21 through 23. This present suffering is only a momentary thing and is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. Our fear, no matter what form fear takes, is ultimately a fear of death. If we've conquered the fear of death, we will be fearless. And we conquer the fear of death by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, whose resurrection frees us from fear by holding us to himself in perfect love. Perfect love casts out all fear, First John tells us. Fear has torment because it has to do with fear of punishment. Once we understand that there is no punishment, for Jesus took it all to himself on the cross, we begin to loose ourselves from that grip of tormenting fear of punishment and into the glorious liberty of the sons of God, which will liberate all creation eventually. It's not faith in the event of the resurrection, but faith in the person who rose and the loving Father who raised him and who did all this solely in order to eventually raise you too and those you love who call on him. We cannot pursue this point in detail here, but it needs to be pointed out that Jesus taking our punishment, quote-unquote, does not mean that God the Father in some vindictive, legalist, uh, monstrous way acted like a pagan deity and demanded payment in blood to satisfy his own personal whim for revenge. That's not what happened at the cross. Jesus was not saving us from God the Father, for heaven's sake. He was satisfying a demand of eternal reality which Jesus, as God, agreed with his Father, as God, that it must be dealt with in only that way and that that was the only way possible to do it. And though there are many theories of atonement, about eight, I think, they are theories. They're good theories, most of them. Some of them I don't think are that good. But they are theories. We don't fully know completely how the death of the Lord Jesus Christ paves the way for life. We know some truth about it, but it's a little arrogant to think that we would ever comprehend fully the incomprehensible relationship of the Father and the Son in first creating the world, then redeeming the world from the power of death. Jesus made it clear in his human suffering when he prayed in the garden that, Father, if there is any way possible, let this cup pass from me. There obviously was no way possible, for if there had been, it would have been given. There was no other way. It was only love that moved the Father and manifested it in the Son to take the action at the cross that was so overwhelmingly dramatic that angels couldn't bear to watch. It is love that overcomes death. Not mere doctrine about all this, but the real love 
The grief-stricken young pastor that lost his parents had to deal with whether he trusted, not in a doctrine about the resurrection, but in a person who sovereignly watched over the entire process of events that he suffered through at the death of his parents. Did he believe in the historic event of the resurrection? Yes, he did. But in the hour of his darkest suffering, the question was not what he believed about history, but what he believed about Jesus and the Father in the here and now of his present agony. Did he believe in him and rest his love in spite of the horror of the events in him? Death and fear are nearly synonymous. We really don't fear flying. We fear whatever craft we are in that it will stop flying. We don't fear disease necessarily. We fear what it will steal from us, what it will separate from us. We do not fear anything we may name as the object of our fear. What we fear is what we will ultimately have torn from us, the separation. If you know your child's body is indestructible and you hear that she's in a terrible crash, you'll be alarmed only for the moment and even uh, after you get all the details how, when, who, why, where, ultimately you would not be shaken by it because there's no danger of death. Cars are replaceable. Metal is fixable. But it's not like that, is it? In this weakness, this futility of our present condition, we are not indestructible. We're fragile. But Jesus steps out of the tomb to declare that from his point of view, which is the only one that matters, Death has been rendered futile, meaningless, ultimately of no purpose. It has lost its sting. You know, if you were reading the Greek New Testament, and you would, you would read that, it would, it would probably strike your American or modern English mind a little strange. The, the wording that Paul uses in reference to death having lost its sting is just that, that he, he says death has been abolished in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Death has been abolished. Uh, and yet in, in, in the Greek text, it, it would actually read something that would communicate death has been given, uh, take, its meaning has been taken away. Now what does, that, what does that make you think when you hear that? It's lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory. Death has been rendered dead, even though in this present ongoing state of futility that remains till the ultimate conclusion of history, as for uh, as far as reality is concerned, the crash or the disease or the murder that would take our loved one is in the coming economy of things not relevant to the outcome. I mean... I don't know how to get this across. You walk in the hospital and you're met by someone who says, a chaplain or a doctor, and he says, uh, your loved one uh, has died, but don't worry about it. It's not relevant to the ultimate outcome. Well, on the one hand, you might want to hit them in the face. But on the other hand, if you think about that seemingly passionless statement 
It's the most wonderful news there is. Uh, your, your, your loved one has died, but don't worry about it. It's not really relevant to the final outcome. That's the spirit of the New Testament. Your loved one, taken in this terrible event, whatever it is, will not, not only be returned to you intact, but returned to you beyond death's power to ever touch him or her again. That's what Jesus said when he walked out of the tomb. By that action, we who trust in Jesus, we still suffer the struggle and the battle and the fear that goes with thoughts of death. But it is the fear of loss that makes the fear tormenting. And for us, there will never be any ultimate loss. In fact, no loss at all. For fear is the anxiety of separation. Separation from what gives us life. Jesus spelled out the battle clearly in John chapter 10 when he says, the thief comes only to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I have come that they might have life, and life abundantly. I've already mentioned 2 Timothy 1.10. Jesus has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, or he shined the light on immortality. Or the Aramaic version says, he displayed life and indestructibility. I love that. Jesus, Jesus abolished death and shined his light on your coming indestructibility. That's all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, someone just sent me this story written by a nurse. She says, many years ago when I worked as a volunteer at a hospital, I got to know a little girl named Lizzie who was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who had miraculously survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies needed to combat the illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and asked the little boy if he would be willing to give his blood for his sister. The lady said that she saw the slight hesitation in his little face and understood his possible fear that he didn't want to have to face a needle or medical procedures, the pain and discomfort that all that can bring. But he took a deep breath and said, Yes, I will do it if, if it will save her. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in the bed next to his sister and smiled as everyone watched the color returning to her cheeks. Then his face grew pale and his smile faded. He looked at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, Will I start to die right away? What this lady had thought was a five-year-old hesitation, but willingly offering himself to endure a few minutes of possible medically induced pain for his sister's sake was actually the most courageous thing she had ever seen a child or an adult do. This little boy thought he was being asked to give his life for his sister and only hesitated a brief moment, then freely gave it. 
Jesus on several occasions celebrated the faith of children and told us that that was the kind of trust he looked for in us. There was a fear in Lizzie's little brother, but even in the face of death, love and trust were much stronger than fear or death. Perfect love had cast out all fear. For we fear not because we are lacking in courage, but lacking in love. David didn't say he was never afraid, but in Psalm 56 verse 3 he says, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Fear is the anticipation of coming dreadful loss. Loss of well-being, loss of treasure, loss of loved one, loss of life. Fear is always related to death in some form. That's why the author of life always seems to preface his words to us with, do not be afraid. Life has come and destroyed death. And he wants us to begin with establishing our faith in that fact about him. And it is his love that provides the platform for that faith in the face of fear because he has already rendered death unproductive, fruitless, powerless, ultimately meaningless. As John Donne said, death Thou shalt die. Now, as we previously have said, it's not death itself that we have a problem with. If we understand death to be separation of the body from the spirit, then death on the physical side is seen as rest from labor or trouble. But if that were true, we would not fear it. But what we know death is is far more than resting from physical danger or trouble. Death is terrifying because it is unknown and known. In other words, it is a known fact that the unknown in death is beyond the human mind's ability to grapple with it. So we come up with all sorts of euphemisms. It's not a graveyard, it's a garden of memory. We don't die, we pass away. We're not buried in a hole in the ground, we Rest in peace. Now, without God, those are all sheer, hopeless, stupid lies. But with God, they are weak understatements. When I was a tiny boy before school age, I spent most every night in sheer terror. My parents didn't know it. I was not afraid of the absence of light, but of the presence of what was in the dark. One night about age four, I was exposed to the face I had most feared in that darkness. As the grown-ups in the room left me and several other children in front of the TV to watch the old black and white 1931 version of Dracula, his face became the face of my faceless dark nightmares. And though I was far too young to grasp this on the conscious level, I still can remember the grip of words spoken in the film when Dracula says to die, to really be dead, that would be glorious. And the way the woman who heard him say that says, well, Count Dracula, what a terrible thing to say. And he turns to her and says these words, I've remembered them for 58 years. There are far worse things awaiting man than death. Abraham Heschel, quoting Gerard Vanderloo, 
describes the horror of the pagan occult religious world in the face of death. Quote, horror and shuddering, sudden fright and frantic insanity of dread all receive their form in the demon. This represents the absolute horribleness of the world, the incalculable force which weaves its web around us and threatens to seize us, the malicious inadequacy and irrationality at the basis of life receives their form in the manifold, uncanny, and grotesque apparitions that have inhabited the world from time immemorial. What Job chapter 18 verse 14 refers to as death, the king of terror. But in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 and 10, it tells us what the king of glory has done to the king of terrors. But we see Jesus, who was ranked for a time a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death in order that by the grace of God he might experience death in all of its forms for each individual person. For it was an act worthy of God and fitting to the divine nature that he for whose sake and by whom all things have their existence, in bringing many sons into glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfectly equipped for his office of great high priest through the things that he suffered. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he also partook of the same human nature, so that by going through death he might bring to nothing and make of no effect. See, there's that same principle again. Death death has been made of so much non-issue that the verbiage of the New Testament uses language that dismisses it almost like an afterthought. That he might bring to nothing and make of no effect him who had the power of death, that is the devil, And also that he might deliver and completely set free all those who through the haunting fear of death were held in bondage throughout the whole course of their lives. So he is able to be a perfect and complete high priest, merciful and sympathetic in every way, in things related to God, to make atonement, For since he himself, in his humanity, has suffered, he is able to immediately come to the cry of those, all those, who are being tempted and are exposed to suffering. Great High Priest. I've told this story on several occasions, and I don't ever get tired of telling it, because I really believe we never get tired of hearing it. But several years ago, I met a man who uh, is the friend of a a physicist, a nuclear physicist, or an astrophysicist. This astrophysicist friend of his has a father who is also an astrophysicist and one of such renown that he received the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago. He turned the Nobel Peace Prize down because he did not want to be identified with the leftist politics that has now taken over the uh, Nobel Prize system. 
But sometime after that, he suffered a heart attack, and my friend got a phone call from his friend and said, Dad has had a terrible heart attack. Can you go with me to the hospital? When they got to the hospital, uh, they found that his father had flatlined and had been clinically dead for several minutes. He went in uh, to find that his father had been revived. And uh, later on, my friend was a witness to the conversation between this astrophysicist father and his astrophysicist son. And the conversation went almost like two people speaking a foreign language in the presence of a third person who could not participate in the conversation from lack of language because they were talking in astrophysics and mathematics and high astro-mathematics, and this is what they were talking about. The father said to both men, in plain enough English for it to be related to me, I saw him. I saw things that if I could put them on a blackboard, if I could put them into astrophysical, mathematical language, I could somewhat communicate it. You know, this is what I believe Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he said, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, who was caught up into the third heaven and there saw things that it was not lawful for him to say. The, the Greek there doesn't mean it was wrong for him to say it. It means it was beyond his ability to say it. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't possible for him to put it in words. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has pre- prepared for them that love him. But the Spirit has revealed them to us by the Holy Spirit. They've been revealed by the Spirit and are being revealed by the Spirit. And this man who had recently come back from the brink of death said to his son and to his son's friend, who's relating it to me. I saw a vast, vast ocean of light that was incomprehensibly beautiful and incomprehensibly terrifying. And he said, I I was not terrified because it was aiming at me any harm. I was terrified I guess sort of like in some ways you might feel if you were standing far too close to the edge of Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls. The overwhelming power of the falling water you know is so far beyond your ability to to, to negotiate it were you to fall into it. But he said it was a millions times beyond that. He said again if I could just write it in a uh, an ast- astrophysics formula and you could understand it, you would get what I'm trying to say. I saw this ocean of inapproachable light, what the Bible calls he who dwells in inapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. And then he said, and then I saw a man Rising, shall I say rising? He wasn't rising. He was just there. He was not there in the sense of being 
separate from the light. Again, if I could write it in some mathematical formula, you would get it. He was not separate from the light. He was that light. This is John chapter 1. This is Hebrews chapter 1. This is Colossians chapters 2 and 3. This is the invisible God whom no man has seen nor can see made visible in the form of a man. And then he said this, I ran toward that man because that was the one place I felt at home. That's where I could identify because that man identified with me. This is the priesthood, the great high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saving us from the invisible light that no man has seen nor can see. Yet what is the source of the terror that this man was describing when he saw that light? It was not that the light was terrifying him on purpose. It is that his condition was such that he could not dwell in the light. The same way if I, and this is not adequate, but if I fell over the Niagara Falls, I would be terrified of the falls and of the fall into the falls, not because the falls are trying to hurt me, but because the very nature of the falls is so different from my nature, and my nature is so different from the nature of the falls that I know I cannot survive dwelling in that atmosphere of those falls. Which brings to mind the wonderful lyrics that Dottie Rambo put to the theme of the, the, the tune of Danny Boy many years ago when she wrote, How marvelous the grace that caught my falling soul. He looked beyond my faults and saw my need. And so out from this unapproachable, invisible, eternal, holy light, which is so loving and so not loving, but is love itself, but love so pure that this man in his broken, fallen state, still in his humanity of, of futility, is so aware of his inability to relate to that light that it strikes his heart as terror. Perfect love casts out fear, and perfect love emerged in the form of a man, who the Bible uses the terminology to describe as God the Father and God the Son. But the best we can do with limited understanding of limited language this man was trying to say, if I could just put it in a mathematical formula, you would see it. The invisible light was that man. Alpha and Omega. Who is Alpha and Omega? The Father or the Son? Yes. Alpha Omega is the Father. Alpha Omega is the Son. And the Son is the invisible God made visible and no man has seen God at any time, John tells us, but the invisible God, the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him available, has made him contactable, has made him 
known. This is why Jesus is the only way. It is utter foolishness to argue some politically correct stupidity about, well, there should be other ways. Find somebody else that could fit in this story I'm telling and let Buddha do it or let Muhammad do it or let Vishnu do it or let Krishna do it. The reason there are no other ways is because there is no other visible God who has made the invisible, unknowable, unapproachable, eternal known. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My grandmother is was not a rock and roller. You might be surprised to hear that. She didn't care for rock and roll that much. But I was so excited one time when I came in because I, I had this song that I wanted her to hear. And it was by Petra. And she was so moved by the lyrics that she had me write those lyrics down and she wrote them. She put them on her bedpost and she kept them over her bed until she went to sleep one night and didn't wake up on the earth. I want to close with that song. No, my grandmother didn't care much for the music style, but she sure did love the lyrics. Listen to them. Take them deep into your soul and let the perfect love that is in that inapproachable light that no man can see nor has seen Shine in your face, in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let perfect love cast out all fear from you. In Jesus' name. Great.